welcome to another episode of the 21st Rewrite. This is a screenwriting podcast, and each week on the show, I review an iconic screenplay from the 21st century and talk about it with a guest, so that you can listen to an in-depth discussion of story, character, and themes to help you with your own writing. For this week's episode, I am away from California and in Yorkshire in England to meet Robert Edgar, the co-author of the new book, Adaptation for Screenwriters. We decided that we would talk about one of our favorite adaptations, the Coen Brothers' No Country for Old Men, based on the book by Cormac McCarthy. I hope this episode is useful to you in terms of thinking about the process of bringing an existing story from page to screen, as well as considering the specific details of this film. It was great to sit down with Robert and to learn from him, and I think you will really enjoy listening to this conversation. So without further ado, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell, and I'm joined this week by a special guest. Robert Edgar is an associate professor of creative writing, specializing in script writing and adaptation at York St. John University, and co-author of the new book, Adaptation for Screenwriting. Hello. Well, today uh, we're going to talk about No Country for Old Men, particularly focusing on the process of adaptation uh, and thinking about the, the relationship between the book and the script and then obviously the script and the film. So this is a third book I've read of Cormac McCarthy's and they are always very visual, very powerful novels. He has an exceptional use of vocabulary, especially living in a border town in the United States. Myself, I love his blend of Spanish his use of terminology for describing the landscape and everything. So he's bringing in a very cinematic view of of Texas right from the very beginning where he lives. And I also believe that he actually started writing this as a screenplay and then chose to eventually publish it as a novel. Yeah, I, I, I've I've read that as well. I understand that's that's what he did, and I, I'd agree absolutely. I think Cormac McCarthy is an incredibly visual writer. I mean, it's something that's said about a great number of novelists, but but I think you're right with Cormac McCarthy. It's 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 there. There's also something very interesting in the way he uses prose, which is particularly filmic. I think we could argue there's very little use of conventional speech marks. The dialogue becomes part of the scenery, becomes part of the environment, and that melding and mixing of, of character and space is is particularly significant i think and it is one of the reasons and it makes a very evocative screenplay very evocative uh, film the two are mixed right from the start and it doesn't impede the way we read it you know we don't miss those those speech marks we don't miss the the very distinct he, he said she said uh, distinction between characters it has a very very immersive quality which the Coen brothers obviously pick up on very very well in the film Afterwards, the Coen Brothers version, I almost felt like some of the magic was missing just in the language. But of course, with a a shooting script, the intention is for everyone in the production team to be on board and very clear about what needs to happen in a scene. It's, It's not like a spec script where you're trying to convince with your writing. It's not, and uh, I mean one one of the the, the texts I use on a, a script writing course with with uh, second year undergraduates is Fargo, uh, and I'm actually start using No Country for Old Men as well. I think the Coen Brothers are very interesting in it's very sparse in terms of of description. They're very very focused on on dialogue. Arguably, it's because they write; they know they're going to direct. It doesn't quite need the same level of description to 
either sell the script or, or for other people to pick up on it. And of course, you know you work. You know you're going to work with Roger Deakins. You know what kind of visual effect you're going to get. You're going to you you know what kind of look it's it's going to have. So I think you're right. The script loses in descriptive quality in the action a lot of of what Cormac McCarthy does, but it reappears in the film. So there's that interesting moment of translation, that idea of a writer director rather than a, a writer who is, as you say, is producing a spec script to sell. The Coen brothers know this is going to go going to go forward. Another thing I noticed is that the Coen brothers chose to rely on Cormac McCarthy's original dialogue a lot of the time, which has its own rhythm. It has this, as I mentioned before, this very interesting blend of Texan giving it this identity and then the, the mix of Spanish coming across from the Mexican side of the border. Very witty dialogue, very profound at times as well. And I think just to start out with the very first scene with the book, what we have is a um, a reoccurrence of narration from the sheriff, Tommy Lee Jones, in, in the film adaptation. And every chapter begins with the, the sheriff's narration. And I think there's a certain symbolism in the opening of the screenplay where the sheriff's voice becomes that of Texas itself, and the Coen brothers choose to overlay these these shots of empty planes devoid of people it specifically mentions in the script that it needs to be empty of people and so you just get this voiceover but one of the things you can't do with film just as easily as have a a recurring narrator and then we just follow the characters in the third person for the rest of the film yeah it's it's, a, it's certainly a, a significant change and again in terms of i suppose adaptation theory it's a, it's a question of, of focalization and a question of perspective ideological perspective which is really interesting and it's significant of course how many films do open with with a voiceover do have that moment of a voiceover and i think there's a question about whether it's so important for the book that this is from the sheriff's ideological position it's from his perspective we view what happens in it effectively from from his his position so whereas uh, the Coen brothers you're right can't have or it would be difficult problematic to have the sheriff reoccurring in terms of voiceover they still need that moment at the start where we hear his voice when we meet him then we know who it is and then the film is viewed from that position really importantly crucially leading to that very profound statement at, at, at the end of the film so yeah, they they keep it. They could have put the voiceover in later, but it would have. I think it would have been very jarring. It would have taken us out of the, the immersive quality that the film has, which relates to to the Cormac McCarthy text. The accents also particularly significant. You say the voice is 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 so uh, significant in characterising place, and again that connection of place, and and character, the interweaving of of the two. Cormac McCarthy's dialogue or, or speech is so rich that it would be very difficult to change it. It would be quite problematic to change it because that would then perhaps change the nature of, of, of representation. It would change the nature of creation of, of place as much as anything else. It would be really interesting to know, and I, I can't find out definitively whether they knew Tommy Lee Jones was going to play that character because Tommy Lee Jones' voice <laughs> is so distinctive and fits that character so perfectly. It's one of those moments in cinema where you can't imagine anybody else playing that character. Yeah, it certainly is iconic. So there's a quote that is is kept in in this opening, and I believe it very much sums up the message of the film in as much as there is a message. It's, it is coming from the sheriff's point of view as opposed to the filmmakers or the author. 
but the sheriff says, you can say it's my job to fight it, but I don't know what it is anymore. And just to give the listeners a sense of what is No Country for Old Men about? What, what is it inviting us into to, as, a, as a story? That's a really interesting question and a, an incredibly um, difficult question to answer. I reread the novel um, a few days ago and I was thinking that myself at the end quite what what is what is this about and I think there's there's a sense of futility about it which you can see in some of Cormac McCarthy's other work. I mean whether there is some kind of underlying existential statement that he's making which is quite unclear in narrative terms. I, I, I think that's what it's saying to us. It's taking a position uh, about life, but it doesn't necessarily come to any conclusions, which makes it a very a very unsettling watch, particularly at the end. And again, it's one of the things that I think the, the Coen brothers capture so beautifully. Just that cut at the end leaves us with that. It's like, oh, what next? What's, what, we want that statement to be made. We want that conclusion to be found. Uh, and... They and Cormac McCarthy deny us any absolute conclusion. They deny us any any absolute meaning. But there is a sense from that opening statement that we're going to be led somewhere, that we're given these very profound statements, that we will have a conclusion. And that's why it's so uh, wonderfully distressing that we don't get it. Mm-hmm. There's another quote I remember from the book that I think helps sum up the sheriff's perspective as well, which unfortunately didn't make it into the film version. But he mentions... In one of his narrations, opening one of the chapters, he he mentions that back in the 40s or 50s, there was a survey at the schools in his county and what were the biggest problems in the school. And he says, kids loitering in the hallways and chewing gum, not handing in their homework, and that they did the same survey again in the 80s. And the problems are rape, murder, arson, and drugs and suicide. And so the, the sheriff himself is very much feeling not only dislocated and swept up by the tide of history, but he feels that everyone around him from his generation and his parents' generation never knew this was going to happen. And it crept up on them so suddenly that the next thing they knew, their entire border town was in crisis. Yeah, absolutely. And the the things that are played out in the film put that into into, into visceral uh images yeah and there's that statement uh, at the end not to keep talking about the end when when we're talking about the beginning but it does come full circle that statement that's made you know when he says i'm, I'm now 20 years older than my father was and yeah that these are people who who don't necessarily belong in this world and in, interesting and i think very significant that we see this as a transition into the 80s from from what what the the sheriff and, and as you say people from his generation uh, would have known this new world of the 80s that we of course now reading the novel or looking back know what happened from from the 80s onwards um so yeah the world ab- absolutely has, has changed and, and maybe left them left them behind and significant of course that the the, the sheriff if is due for retirement is due to finish and and to effectively leave leave all this behind some of that of course is played out in that that moment as well in the gas station where there's the coin toss and the threat of violence and that discussion about how someone ended up in this um, in this situation, how someone ended up running this gas station, and some of you know, those themes, I think you're right, are played out through uh, through the film. So the first character that we actually see on screen is Anton Chiga, who is played by Javier Bardem in his 
Academy Award-winning performance for this film. Chigger as a character, for those who are not familiar with Cormac McCarthy's work, because he is a very difficult author, he uses a very wide range of literary themes and he's very unforgiving with his readers. It's often hard to figure out, perhaps, whether things that are taking place are happening in the minds of characters, if it's symbolism, if it's really occurring. But he, he does have this recurring character, which is something akin to the great evil or Satan in Blood Meridian. There's a prominent character, the judge. Blood Meridian, which no one has successfully adapted for the screen yet, but the judge essentially is believed to be Satan incarnate. And it seems that Chirgo is some sort of representation like that in, in some sense. And that is why no one can actually put a name to the face and describe him to the police. He seems to be some sort of unstoppable evil. Yes, I, I'd, I'd agree he is. And I think you're right that Cormac McCarthy has these very dark, very dangerous figures. And it, you're right, it's, it's really difficult to pinpoint quite what he's doing with them. He, he makes them deliberately um, elusive. But the idea that Chigurh is a is a, an unstoppable force, again, is, is, is absolutely right. And we see that in that, that mo- first moment that we we meet him and it's described in the book that he's he's doing this. He's He's arrested to see if he can escape and that in itself you know the idea that you would do this that the death is 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 inevitable uh, is just something he does it is is a very troubling one so yeah whether he's the devil whether he's demonic whether he's a psychopath he's he's all of those things at once what's really interesting i think in the in the film is the shot that we get of the moment of the escape you know that we, that we can see behind him we have that awful moment uh, where we can see him escape where we see him release where we know what's going to happen to the officer and then it happens but it's the close-up on his face and the the evident strain but the absence of of emotion either way he's not enjoying it but he's not distressed by what he's doing either. This is just a, a physical strain. It's just something that, that he he does. And the idea that that character, and indeed characters like them, are out there amongst us it is remarkably un- unsettling. They might just appear, or that lock might just be fired through at any moment, uh, and, and he might walk in. And that fear is enhanced because there's no rationale for what he does, no real rationale presented for what he does or why he uses the tools that he does. And and that makes him a tremendously unsettling, a tremendously distressing uh, figure. Yeah, in the book, the sheriff offers an answer, which I think is very interesting to those who are only familiar with the film. In a a typical Texan way, he, he says that if the dogs mean enough, then no one will break into your yard. What he's saying has happened with the police force in the United States is they weren't mean enough in mm. that sense that by the time that they had allowed this to start to occur, it was too late and everything had been transformed. And it it is very interesting in that sense that the whole story opens with this, with this simple experiment to see if he can break out of a, a small county jail whilst in handcuffs. And, and still escape and not even be identified. No, that's, it's absolutely right. There's a sense, I think, in the, in, in the film and in, in the novel, of course, of people passing the time, time just slipping away uh, from them. Um, and the idea that Chigurh would do this to pass the time 
for some kind of amusement to test himself again. It's, it's unclear is a, is a really interesting one. There's, that again ties into that that overriding theme for me of, of, of futility that sits behind a, a lot of a lot of what happens. You know, you know that debate around whether the police uh, should have been meaner, should have been more direct in their action. The the idea that it's now too late, that this is an inevitable move forward, uh, an inevitable state of of America post 1980 is is uh, is a really interesting one. As I mentioned, Cormac McCarthy's style is often quite difficult in in the sense that it also invites a reader to use their imagination more widely. He often presents events happening. And he'll just mention the man or this person did this. And he won't give you much of a description of what they look like. I suppose the question I have is about how iconic of a character they made, Javier Bardem. And the Coen brothers intended to make him look somewhat like a David Bowie from The the Man Who Fell to Earth. Something that didn't seem to really belong, something alien. However, there's no mention in the screenplay of what he actually looks like. And is that important? Should a, should a writer try and define that? Is it just because they were going to direct it, they didn't feel that they needed to, to cover that part about just how bizarre and alien this, this character looks and how undefinable he is by race, for example, or, or country or anything? It, it's very hard to pin him down as belonging to one place or the other. Well, I think the, thematically, I think it's really important that we can't pin him down. And as you say, you know, this idea that this this person has swept in off the plains. I mean, a really iconic kind of Western image in this sense, uh, a, a bad guy rather than a hero riding in on a, a horse, you know, to, to shoot up the town. But there are things about his behaviour and about the, the things that he carries with him in the novel, which, which I think do give him that that sense. He's described by Cormac McCarthy very lightly, isn't he? You know, they talk about the boots and the jeans, and you know, these are rather neutral items of clothing that don't define him. But it's the um, air pressure gun, the canister, you know, the size of it, the unwieldy nature of it, the fact that he carries this round with him, that in itself makes him, I think, particularly strange, particularly threatening. So in the book, there, uh, there are those, I suppose, those signifiers uh, of, of, of character there. In the film, yeah, he does have a very strange alien quality to him. The haircut in particular, and the way the hair moves in particular situations, uh, particularly with action, is, is is significant. So there is that element, of, I suppose, of, of late 70s kind of cool about him, which, which always looks strange uh, now to our eyes. I think it's really interesting in terms of the question of, of whether a scriptwriter should, should put that in. Again, it's the spec script and, and them knowing they were going to shoot it. Do they need that description in? How far does it help them? How far do they leave it to a costume designer to deal with? I think most scripts that I've dealt with have very little in terms of character description. And it's that moment in reading a script about how, how much we need, how, how much actually then breaks with the flow of the script. Is it better from a few very brief character descriptions to then create and conjure the character in, in your head, regardless of how, how much they might appear um, on screen? I think it's far better just to have those few signifiers. So again, the, the very much in the way that Cormac McCarthy does it, you know, we, we have those, we have the boots, we have the jeans, we have the canister, we have the, the stun uh, gun at the, the end of it, and we have a series of, of traits and attributes 
attributes of character, those behavioral characteristics that bring the character to life, that give them humanity, or in the case of, of Chigurh, make him really unhuman, inhuman in, in his behavior. You know, it's almost like reading the script that we're, we're seeing a, f- a figure with that canister, but almost with a blank face. And that's kind of what the, the Coen brothers do uh, with the character when they, they bring him to life. You know, it's a wonderful, absolutely wonderful portrayal by Javier Bardem of, of, of that character and deserving of, of all the accolades that he received. But it's a wonderfully blank performance. The lack of emotion is, 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 uh, is remarkable to sustain that through the film. So we have our two, um, if the sheriff is uh, intending at least to be on the side of good and Chigurh is on the side of evil, the final character to be introduced is Llewellyn Moss. And how would you describe his role in the story? Llewellyn Moss is, <laughs> yeah, he, he's he's a really interesting one. I, mean, I suppose we could do a very crude Freudian reading, you know, of um, the id, ego, and then superego. I don't know if that would apply, really. I, I think structurally he performs a really interesting function. Uh, and structurally, the Cohen brothers keep very closely to Cormac McCarthy's novel to think of this in, in conventional structural terms. The inciting incident really is with Llewellyn Moss and there's a sense perhaps where he, he is our conscience. We, whilst it might be from uh, the sheriff's perspective, I think we, we empathise with, we connect with Llewellyn Moss. The inciting incident really, you know, it's the kind of classic, he, he has a hand in his own downfall, even though he's doing something for perfectly legitimate, honourable reasons, you know, going back to give the guy the um, the drink of water after he's, after, you know, he's, he's asked for it earlier. You know, we want him to do that. This is morally right. And him taking this morally correct position, we engage with, with Llewellyn Moss as, as a character, you know, and we can see that, that mid point perhaps when the bag goes over the the um the, the fence and then he, he manages to get into into mexico so creating that sense of empathy having him as the heart of the film if you like our connection as audience into the film as Cormac mccarthy does with the book then of course when he dies mm-hmm. it's an absolutely horrendous shock because we've been taken along so far and and the moral center then is removed from the film you know this is someone for whom good things should happen. He's trying to protect those around him. He hasn't really done any harm to anyone at all. He's a generally nice, ordinary guy. Yeah, it's it's the hero's journey sold short, and it's the it's a false hero in a way, because he he does play that role that the audience is expecting, and the fact that he is taken away from us again leaves us with the same kind of feeling that the sheriff has of no longer knowing where is up and where is down, what is right and what is wrong. Once we are unsure where the story is headed anymore, we're left in that same position, I think. It's a really powerful use of that character. And Cormac McCarthy had certainly designed the story entirely with that in mind. It's The screenplay very much follows the same pattern of events. They're, obviously, the time periods are compressed quite significantly, Cormac McCarthy does like to dwell for long times on the minor actions that the character's doing. However, I also found in the screenplay that there were many, many pages of, of action action lines where there were no dialogue. And then you would get a very dialogue-heavy scene with very little action, very little direction written into it. So in that sense, I also did copy that structure from Cormac McCarthy where we, we get those pages where 
he has laid it out almost like a screenplay with with line breaks between everyone's dialogue. The only difference being that the character's name doesn't appear at the top of of each each line. Yeah, and the the structure of of the the novel and in terms of pacing and the structure of the script, I think you're right. Of a very similar, you know, we we hate to again in adaptation theory to to really use the the idea of it being faithful because is there any such thing really? There 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 are so many fundamental changes between page and screen, but structurally, I think we could say that there's that that they are quite faithful to Cormac McCarthy's novel. And that dwelling on scenes is is a, is a really interesting one because structurally, I think we we do get part of a three act structure and then it goes, which is okay, why it's so unsettling uh, for all the reasons you've you've suggested absolutely absolutely. But we also dwell on on in the way that within a novel we we would have a chapter that deals with a character and then the method of engaging with a novel is so different. The way we we sit down and read, the way we pause, we can go back over the text. We dwell on that character. Uh, and Cormac McCarthy spends a a chapter with a character, and of course, as as the book progresses, suddenly, as you say, you know, we get these not just the dialogue moving from from one character to the next very swiftly, but we suddenly get chapters where we're moving between different characters, and the pace increases, and the script follows that as well. So we spend a you know a long time uh, with Llewellyn Moss at the start of of, of the film. And we spend quite a, a chunk of time with with the sheriff as as well. When we we eventually get to to his uh, his his first major uh, sequence, but that pace picks up, and that's unusual in the novel. I think it would be, it's much more conventional, but certainly in popular fiction, to have a chapter which deals with a character and then another chapter different character, and then we move on. And the base of the structure remains fairly consistent. It's one of the reasons why. The latter half of the novel is perhaps quite filmic in the way it chops between scenes and between characters. The first part is is very literary. So it's whether McCarthy's writing a very filmic book structurally or whether the Coen brothers have actually picked up on a book and followed a structure which is very much of Cormac McCarthy. And I think it's probably a, a little bit between the, the two. As you mentioned faithfulness in adaptation, this I think this is a point I'd like to develop a bit further as well, considering you do go over that quite significantly in your own book, Adaptation for Screenwriters. Could you just share a few more of your thoughts on what faithfulness actually signifies in common usage? When we're talking about adaptations and faithfulness, would you suggest that it depends on whether they've captured this elusive spirit of the work that we like to talk about, or is there anything else you'd like to add? I think it's it's a really uh, tricky question, and I think it's very contingent. It's very dependent on the kind of text that we're talking about in, in terms of adaptation and what's been what's been picked. Classics, you know, I think we receive classics as audience very differently to the way that we would receive a piece of fiction which doesn't have the same kind of status. And I think we, we can perhaps subdivide I suppose a slight oversimplification but we can subdivide you know the idea or concept of a classic between you know those kind of literary canonical works of classics and contemporary classics which is perhaps a contradiction in terms in some ways but we would see Cormac McCarthy being an author of weight of, of status whose, whose work has a particular gravitas uh, and cultural status to it so I think we treat the idea of faithfulness very differently with those kinds of texts it's, I suppose it's a kind of ideological position that we we bring to it as audiences and with that the idea of faithfulness has a certain a different kind of importance to it it's not a faithfulness necessarily to because it can't be faithful to the entirety of, of the book 
I think it's a recognisability of the film. It feels like, it looks like, it sounds like the text. You know, often it can be it can be radically different. I mean, some of, some of the examples that we use in the book and we use in our, our teaching are <laughs> classics of cinema, using the term for classics again. But texts like David Lean's Great Expectations, for instance, where at the start of that work, Lean has the book. He has you know, Charles Dickens' name on the screen. He has a copy of Great Expectations. The pages flutter. We hear John Mills reading out the opening of the book. And it signifies status. It signifies this is connected to that source. Of course, what Lean then does with that book is entirely different. He moves away from Dickens. There are points in the structure which remain, of course, the same, but he veers radically away from it at points because it's impossible to capture that size and complexity of book in a film. No Country for Old Men sticks very, very closely to the plot structure that Cormac McCarthy puts out and some of the narrative structure in the, in the chapters as well. So it has that feeling of faithfulness. But I think you're right, there's also a, a way of capturing the spirit of the book. And it's that idea that a lot of adaptations have to do things which are quite different in order to get closer to the book, particularly some of those texts which are deemed unfilmable or have been deemed unfilmable. Again, one example we, we talk about in the book, and again, my, my co-author John and I use in, in teaching adaptation, is Henry James' Turn of the Screw and the wonderful Jack Clayton uh, version, The Innocents, which becomes much more based on I mean, a very difficult book to, to film. And there have been a number of television adaptations with varying degrees of success. But The Innocents captures very much the spirit, arguably, of what Henry James was doing with, with that story. So I think that there are different ways. I think part of the complexity is we use the idea of, of faithfulness, often in common parlance, about adaptations. When we go to the cinema and come out, we talk about it being faithful. We talk about the book being better or the film being better. In, in academic terms, it has a different meaning. It's one we try and avoid using, really. It's, it's something that I've, as I've been doing the podcast and very closely comparing source materials to screenplays to films, it's something that I have a much clearer appreciation for, just how much work goes into an adaptation and that often things that an audience, certainly an audience that's familiar with a book, would say exactly the, the words you just mentioned of the book might be better or the film is better. For example, looking at the adaptation of Kazuo Ishiguro's um, Never Let Me Go, for example, so much was changed for the book and it felt very much like an unfaithful adaptation, but it also might just be that the screenplay itself wasn't of the quality that the book itself was. And so there's also that sense when it comes to what we might call faithfulness might just be a comparison of whether, obviously you have many different techniques when you're writing a novel. You can write entirely in the first person and portray everything as someone's recollections and then have a unreliable narrator all the way through, whereas on screen you've got to see what really happened in, in most cases. In this particular case, I think what we do have is a screenplay which has followed the novel No Country for Old Men very closely in terms of its key plot points. Timeline compression is a necessary evil just to, to get a book of that scope onto the screen and, and everyone in and out of the cinema in two hours. But essentially it does follow the same structure. And then the additional fact that the dialogue is often lifted directly from the page 
and then whittled down to the key the key elements of a, a particular scene. I think that made it so well received as a as an adaptation. With this podcast, we look only at films for the 21st century as well. So classics, in that sense, we don't necessarily know what will happen in the year 2100 or the year 2200. Perhaps certain texts from our time will have been adapted for the screen four or five or six times by that point. Even things that we thought of as as quite iconic, like The Lord of the Rings, are already receiving a, a second adaptation for this uh, millennia already. So it's it's going to be really interesting. And then when we think of Shakespeare, for example, it's almost a crime not to reset it in a different time and not to try and put a new spin on it because it's been told over and over for 400 years that you need to do something new. It's almost the expectation is on the... Uh, the stage director or the the director if it's a film adaptation to do something completely original with it or set it in the modern day or on a spaceship or whatever you want to do. I think that really covers my question about adaptation in general and uh, I think there's plenty there for, for the listener to think about when it comes to adapting their own stuff that there is no right way about this. It It's more about finding what works with the source material that you have. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think that's why that, that idea of, you know, is something being adapted or is something kind of based on, inspired by, or is something kind of appropriating a character or appropriating an environmental setting and radically changing what's there? I think we, we get often, uh, particularly new writers to, to script writing, can get tied by the idea of being faithful, by the ideological position of something being a classic. And as you're saying, you know, you can do anything with it. It's perhaps easier with certain text, as you say, Shakespeare, or, or even something like Great Expectations, which was received, you know, relatively recent uh, adaptations been set in the uh, in, in, in contemporary period or set all over the place. So there are lots of things that, that can be done. But I think there is one aspect just to kind of follow up on that idea of, of, of adaptation of faithfulness. I think one of the issues that you've identified quite rightly is this idea of being and seeing inside someone's head, understanding a rationale for what they do, that that either first-person or third-person narration that we get in novels, which is impossible to replicate in a, in a film, even with those moments of voiceover that we do get in some films. And we get at the start of, of No Country for Old Men, it's not consistent so the rationale for why people do things is is always elusive. It's always inferred. And I think that's why some adaptations people feel very strongly about because that's that's the aspect we we lose, and that's perhaps the aspect that they they want. One example again, which we always provoke strong reactions uh, in in teaching about the about adaptation, is enduring love. And people watch either reading the novel or watching the film independently think either one's a great thing, uh, generalising here, but that's te that tends to be the position. When you look at it in terms of adaptation, people are often quite angered by the film. I think it's a great film, but they think the two don't work together. And I think a lot of that is to do with that, that internal understanding the mindset of the main characters and why they're doing what they're doing. What's really interesting about No Country for Old Men, of course, is that we, as we've said perhaps a little already, we don't understand why these characters are doing what they're doing. Cormac McCarthy is elusive. That's one of the things he doesn't give us. And one of the reasons why the book is so challenging. We get some of it from the sheriff. 
but he's talking very generally. He's talking out there. It's not the internal workings of his mind. It's not a third-person narrator telling us what he's thinking. It's more distant than that. It's more complicated than that. It forces the reader to work a lot more, but it might be one of the reasons why it makes for a very, very good adaptation, because we were never going to get that with the film anyway. Yeah, and I do think and highly recommend that with films that, that you really love that are adaptations of books, going back and reading the book, I, I I honestly feel that anyone who is a fan of No Country for Old Men, the film, will gain so much by then going on to explore Cormac McCarthy's work, reading this novel, other ones, as I've mentioned, Blood Meridian, The Road as, as well, is a, a fantastic and and a much more difficult adaptation, I feel. But he's he's a really, really phenomenal writer. And so if these characters are interesting to you as as an audience, you'll find so much more depth in the novel in terms of figuring out those characters' motivations, how they were originally designed. And then sometimes with the Coen brothers in particular, you have a sense. It's not so strong in this particular film. In other films, they lean very heavily into the comedy inherent in scenes and the comedy even in very tense conflict driven scenes they'll they'll lean into the comedy and they didn't they chose in many cases to not do that with no country for old men simply because the source material is is so strong in the dialogue but as we start to get into the middle of the film i think we'll start to see a few more examples of of where they made changes because the intro is is quite similar to the book moss finds himself having explored the crime scene and discovered what appears to have been a drug deal gone wrong. He's a very intuitive man. He He's a hunter. He has been in the United States Army. He's he's fought in Vietnam. He's able to figure out, infer things from, from the evidence in front of him and finding that all of the drugs have been left behind, but there's no money. He, he starts to look around and he's, he's able to track down who was initially the last man standing. And when he finds the suitcase, I, I really love this as a way of writing as well. You, you never specifically tell anyone in the moment what they're looking at. There's no expositional dialogue. He lifts out one of the packets of, of bills, counts that out, and then you can infer from the entire case how much money should be in there. And when he goes home to to his wife, then we start to get a sense of of what his home life was like. He was living in a trailer park. He clearly was very poor. In the book, there's a beautiful line. When he finds that case, it says, his entire life is in there working dawn to dusk for the rest of his life, essentially. He would never make this kind of money. So we can see exactly what it would mean to him and we, from that point, we, we understand what that character's motivation is. He wants to figure out a way to make it out of this life and to keep that money. So the, the moment where he, he finds the money yeah, is obviously absolutely significant. And there's a, a pacing that leads up to that in the film. Because you're quite right that that, that moment is it's so significant for him because we understand his home life. There's something about his character and traits and attributes of that character that are laid out visually before that. The way that the, uh, the, the script, the film, we see Moss 
pausing, waiting. It's when he sees the, the tree in the distance, you know, and he's checking very carefully. There's a cautious quality to his character, which is is played out visually in, in the film very, very well. You know, this is not someone who's running over to the money. At that point, he has no idea how much it, it, it is, but he's not running over to get it. He's not going to cause violence to, to anyone else to get it. This is just something that's he's smart, he's clever, but this is something which is opportunistic. And I say he has no option but but to take it. But the lack of description of it, the lack of discussion of it, the lack of you know, detail about how much money is there is, is really interesting. Because again, if we'd see him as the moral centre of the film, as the person that we empathise with, that we connect with, we need that moment as well of making that decision, of being put in that place, of picking out that first bundle of uh, of dollar bills and thinking, what would we do in this situation? There's no one around. No one's going to find you. Would you take it? And of course he does. And of course, in that moment in the film, we do as well. We're, we're complicit um, in that action. There's no discussion. There's no rationale. Again, it's this absence of a rationale as to why we have to read into it. But we're, we're effectively doing it. So when he then makes the decision to return with the water, of course, that's the moment it it really starts to unravel. And that, I think, is the really significant moment with Llewellyn Moss as a, as a character that he knows. And he, he, he says at that point in a very, very casual way that this could be it. You know, he knows that moment he's effectively putting everything on the line with this small act of humanity which is futile anyway when we've obviously discovered that the guy in the front of the truck has died. Yeah, I'm trying to remember his exact words, but he says something along the lines of, I'm fixing to do something good on stupid and I'm going to do it anyway. So he is overcompensating in, in some sense. And that sense that nothing in life is free seems to play into it because he he's aware that the money has come to him. But the danger that is implicit in that is that and as he says to his wife, it's, at what point would you stop bothering to look for your $2 million? How long is this going to chase him? Who are the people he's dealing with? And what is his motivation for going back? Is it simple humanity? Is it something else? Where where does it come from, do you think? And I know it's just an interpretation, but where, what's your intuition telling you? I, I think it is that moment of uh, a moment of humanity. I can't see any other rationale for for him to do it. You know, this is gnawing away at him, you know, and there's almost a sense that he knows it's it's futile. He knows it's it's too late. He knows it could land him in trouble, but his conscience won't let him do anything else. And that is a very bleak statement that comes through that you act in 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 a way that is human. You act on your conscience. And you act against your own best interest to help someone else. And actually, that, that doesn't help you. You know, you end up in trouble. And I, I don't think Cormac McCarthy or the Coen brothers are making a particular statement about humanity or, or, or being negative about kind acts at all. But it ties into the theme, I keep returning to it, but that kind of theme of, of futility um, that, that seems to come through in the book uh, very strongly for me. In, in some way, he's embodying the values that the sheriff is complaining are being lost and it shows the danger of continuing to live in that trusting and neighborly way when dealing with the new evil that has that has come to their to their region and the drug traffickers and the industry behind them the primary motivation is money they are not distributing and 
importing drugs into the United States for any reason other than the fact that it has phenomenal profit margins. And people are dying throughout the film as a representation of what is happening along the entire United States and Mexican border and has been happening for this many decades, essentially, it is because of the drug trafficking and the, the amount of money that's actually involved in that. It gives us a very good reason to be pessimistic, I think, is because we have our hero try and do the heroic thing, and it sets off the chain of events that's going to get him killed. You're absolutely right. It sets off that chain of events, and there is an inevitability to it that, in structural terms, I think carries carries us along because it shouldn't be inevitable. As you said before, you know the idea of the hero's journey that he will, in some senses, succeed. He he will, and what what will he succeed in? He escapes the life he's in. He escapes the trap, and Carla Jean will disappear off and have a successful life because of this piece of good fortune, which admittedly is based on other people's misery, but at least someone will succeed from it. So that's the trajectory we expect from the film. And, and of course, that's what's denied for us is from that moment, that inciting incident, that starting point of the act of humanity. And I think that is the inciting incident. It's not the finding of the money. It's that moment when he goes back to, to give the water. I think what's interesting following that relatively quickly, of course, in, in, in terms of his escape from that moment when he's, he's gone back and he's being shot at and chased down, that tremendously tense moment where he's chased down, one of those moments of narrative compression in the, in the film. Of course, in the book, we spend a lot longer with him out, you know, in that long description, very painful description of his boots and having to wrap his feet up and all those things, which would take a great deal of time in the film, is compressed greatly. But it's the moment where he shoots the dog, you know, and, and there's something about that. It's interesting talking to other people about the film. That's one thing that, that people seem to remember more than more than other things. You know, there's that moment where he's forced effectively to kill the, the dog. The writer, uh, C. Robert Cargill, talks about this as one of the rules of writing, to never shoot a dog. And the use of shooting a dog in a narrative has to be highly, highly, highly significant. It's one of the few things that American audiences repeatedly refused to accept from a heroic character. And he gave the example of, I believe it's John Wick. John Wick's dogs are shot in the start of the film. And that justifies, in the audience's mind, this character going off and killing every single goon that steps in his way for the rest of the film as revenge. The killing of a dog is, is actually completely significant. And in this particular case... I think it marks the point of no return. It's the point that this money is going to change him, whether he likes it or not, because he is going to die if he can't get away with it. If he cannot disappear, they will find him and they will hunt him down. And so I don't think we lose sympathy for the character because he shoots the dog, because it's done as an act of self-defense and the dog is not a cute puppy that belongs... <laughs> that belongs to some local resident. It's a, a Rottweiler or some, I'm not sure which, which breed it is, but it's a, it's a hound. It's going to chase him down. It's going to rip his throat out unless he can. And, and there's that very tense, again, that the compression of the timeline is, of course, on screen. You want the tension. He, he's trying to get the cartridge into his gun at the last second and, and everything like that. You feel like he has no other choice. And but it's, it's a very interesting point. It's an important rule of writing is 
when you're using a motif like that to be sure of why you're using it because audiences have certain expectations when it comes to those things. I think you're right, and I think it puts us in a in a very uh, a very difficult moral position because if if we are now alongside Llewellyn Moss, if he is our moral centre to to the film, you know, and we're in that situation, it, it's it's very much like the money. It, it requires that engagement. You know, what would we do in that situation? And of course, he has no choice at all, and the tension is ramped up. And the awful moment where he's trying to clear the water out of the gun and trying to reload it and the dog is upon him when he, he fires the gun there is literally no choice so yeah i think you're right it's it's a signal that he's got he's got nowhere else to go and it's it's really emotive regardless of the breed of dog just prior to that you know we see it swimming in the water it's despite the fact that it's a pitbull or a rottweiler you know it, it looks like a cute little dog swimming in a river so it's uh, that i think i think emotionally you know, the coen brothers are really playing with us with at that moment after this point, we get some really great scenes, some of the most memorable. When Chirgo stops in one of the gas stations and introduces one of the iconic motifs from No Country for Old Men, which is the coin toss. It's it's not overused, and I almost remembered it as being used more. It actually only appears twice, but it's enough to establish the stakes at the end of the film when the second coin toss happens by having the first one. Audiences remember these very visual moments such as that. What we get is the implication that Chirga has some sort of moral code, or a moral code, um, the opposite of a moral code, but he seems to also leave certain things to destiny, certain things to fate, and he will not make a decision to spare someone himself, but he'll allow fate to, to let that happen. That's the only thing that will stop him is if fate intervenes. So with the coin toss, the heads or tails means life or death for, for this innocent man. It seems to be implied that Chirga is killing people because he doesn't want to be identified. And that's the easiest way to not be identified is to have no one be able to describe him because they are dead. Really great dialogue in, in that sequence as well. I think it goes on for about three or four pages in, in the screenplay of just snappy back and forth. And then following that, we get much more of the cat and mouse game. We have the sheriff chasing and trying to figure out what's going on with this case in the first place, discovering the same crime scene that Moss discovered and which Moss inferred what had happened from. And then we also have Chirga chasing down Moss there's, there's, there's kind of two cat and mouse games, I suppose, going on at the same time. Yeah, the the pace of the film changes, and the, the, I think the nature of the film changes uh, at that that point. Chiga's a, a fascinating character, of course. That coin, right, that coin toss is is significant, but there there is a, a very strange logic to it because at one level he's picking up on the logical inconsistencies in the story and the background of the attendant. Uh, the owner of the, of the gas station, all that wonderful story about it. You know, it's his it's his mm-hmm. wife's family, and you know he just wants to get out of there, though, right? That's, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. The discussion yeah. they close at dusk, and it's quite clearly not dusk when mm-hmm. when he wants them to close. But it, you're right. So the logic is for Sugar to to kill everyone, so he can't be recognised. But of course, he lets him live, 
and that idea that he he you know chance rules his existence is a really interesting one except of course it, it ties in wonderfully to the second time we we see the coin toss and that moment which leads to the ending it has to be there to lead to the, to the ending where he's challenged by Carla Jean and and she com- actually confronts his his and props his, his entire modus operandi where she says it's not the coin it's just you you know you're the one who makes these absolutely. decisions yeah. And that must present something absolutely horrendous to that character. That challenge is so significant at the end in in terms of her character and what it says about him. From this point on, we start to get many, many more pages that are entirely action-driven. And this does happen in in the novel's version. The pace is quite slow and we're following. There's never really a sense that one character is upon the other one. Each character seems to arrive at the scene in the case of Jigger is chasing Moss and the sheriff is chasing down both of them and trying to figure out what's going on and trying to intervene in time. But they're always one or two steps behind. And what the Coen brothers do for the screenplay is they bring everything in very tightly so that characters are essentially on top of each other, moments behind each other. And so with Moss's trailer, which has been evacuated with Carla Jean going to Odessa and Chiga breaks in and drinks the milk and then that's not in the novel at all it's it's a very good use of a visual motif to explain time to the audiences the milk is still cold by the time that the sheriff and and Wendell arrive there yeah absolutely crucially most adaptations um you know the compression of story time into text time and that that fundamental difference of of film being a time-based medium you know and and script being a page a minute we know and we can time things absolutely and precisely and there's a way of of then anticipating how an audience will react to certain scenes structurally of course, the way we engage with the book is entirely, entirely different. It is that physical act of reading that we pause, we stop, we put it down, we reread. The act of engaging with it is, is very different, regardless of the fact that we might pause a film and rewind it and, and do those kind of things. It's not intended to be consumed in, in, in that way. It's a very different way of engaging with it. So that process of narrative compression is, is really significant and also motivating much more one scene um, to the next. So you're right, the milk is a, is a really great device. It shows us time compression, but it also brings characters close together. The fact that the sheriff then has a glass of milk as well, uh, just after Chigurh has, brings those characters arguably slightly closer together as well, as well as there being something slightly unpleasant about drinking milk that's been left out on a table by a killer. You know, there's something mm, awful yeah. in, in, in the action of that, something unsettling in the action of, of that as, as well. It's almost saying he's trying to understand his mind. What little clues are left? Because Chigurh specifically doesn't leave clues. The, one of the things that baffles them is the fact, how did he shoot someone in the head and there's no bullet? And of course, it's this, this cylinder that he, he carries around. The fact there are so few clues, it's, it's as if the milk might in some way speak to them. And, and give them what they, the information that they obviously can't find. 
And it's one of the other the motifs that, that's there. And again, wonderfully visual motif in both the book and the film, but no wonder it's used um, in the film as well, is the cylinders being shot out, the, the cylinders flying across the room. The sheriff then, as he starts to understand what little he can of sugar, it's the minute he walks into a space, we, we get the shot, we see the hole where the cylinder's gone and he knows who it is again. He knows who's responsible, but he doesn't know anything about them. But it's that signifier of of presence you know it's, it's extremely eerie you know there was someone here there was someone who who did this very strange act and we're put in a, a position as, as audience where we know slightly more than about what's happened not why it's happened but we know slightly more than than the sheriff but equally we can't piece it together because because we don't understand why Another similar one that we have as well is obviously the vent system in the motel where Moss is hiding the money. In the book, this goes on for a lot longer. He spends more time in the motel. He switches motels. He's struggling. He's trying to come up with a plan that's going to save him. What we have in the in the screenplay version is is much more compressed, and we have them essentially in opposite rooms from each other. He hears the gunshots. There are other Mexican drug dealers as well who have also tracked him down because he's got this transmitter in the back that he hasn't yet found. Again, the the use of the map to show clear explanations of which room is which and what he's been doing to hide it. These action pages go on for so long in the screenplay to make this very clear to us to, so that when it comes out visually, there's no need for any dialogue, but everyone knows what's at stake when they see that bag, when they see that vent, when they see the motel doors and the numbers on the front and everything like that. I did want to ask something about, just in terms of as a writer or what you might have found through adaptation, where you would find these visual motifs in a non-visual format such as a book. Is it something that, again, going back to the idea of authenticity to the original text, is it something that by necessity needs to be found within the text itself or should be like the like the glass of milk, something screenwriters should be thinking about. How can I add in something more visual here to convey something so that the audience knows what's going on? I think it depends very much on what the, the particular motif is in the book and how well it translates visually. So where you've got something like the lock being shot out, that cylinder, you couldn't have sugar without that because it's so essential to the character and it's such an important device in terms of the sheriff you know, recognising this and seeing it himself as a motif of, of the character. But there are other moments where things need to be translated in, into something which is visual, something which an audience will recognise, which carries over from one to the next. I mean, it's a question of if it's there in the text and it lends itself to film, if it, if it lends itself to being portrayed visually, then use it. But the, there is a need often to create these things, to, to add them in, or perhaps sometimes to remove a visual clue. If it's something from a character's perspective, the character sees it and we understand what effect it has on them because we see the inside of their head, we hear what what it has, but we ha don't have that in film. The resonance of that image, uh, the resonance of that signifier might be lost, so it might be better to to remove it. So it's always a question about audience. 
and the frequency we talk about it perhaps in terms of order, duration of frequency of, of particular symbols, particular images, and whether it ultimately means what we want it to mean. It might, might shape the meaning in, in entirely the wrong way. If the um, image of the milk, if the milk as a device or a motif had been used repeatedly, we might start to you know, read more into that. It works wonderfully in, in that moment, in bridging those two scenes, in connecting those characters, and in compressing time, but we wouldn't want to read more into it than than that. So it has to be a very delicate use of those of those symbols. As a result of this very long midpoint sequence, Moss finds himself injured again, but he also manages to injure Shigur. And in that sense, these two characters continue on a parallel journey that both of them have to go and recuperate, and Moss ends up in Mexico. And uh, this is one of the parts of the book that I find is dealt with very differently than the screenplay. Uh, The screenplay, I think, takes a bit more of that Coen Brothers charm and has him wake up surrounded by mariachis, for example. And it's just there primarily for the humor and the absurdity of the situation. Whereas in the novel, he is desperate and he's, he's offering money to the first person he can find to take him and drive him to a hospital. Yes, it's dealt with far more quickly in the in the in the screenplay. And you're right, you know, it's, it is that wonderful Coen Brothers thing. You know, that, that the sh- shot looking up of, of faces and the Coen Brothers' wonderful use of, of very very distinctive faces and the reactions of of the mariachi band is 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 wonderful. It is one of the moments of noticeable humour within it, of which there are very little, although. There's some under. I think there is quite a lot of underlying humour in it because of of the absurdity of the situations, the absurdity of the position that the these people have got themselves into, and you see that in some of the other situations. You know, the the exchange about the shirt at the end with Shiger and buying the coat, and uh, uh, and the exchange with the the border guard when Moss gets back into into the US. So those moments are there in that midpoint or that, those middle sequences in in the film, and it, it's whether that can that gives us as a as an audience a sense of hope you know if if we're able to engage humorously with this perhaps there is hope for moss after all and then of course um Mm -hmm. of course there isn't so it serves a really interesting narrative function as well yeah just in terms of absurdity as well now living next to the american mexican border in 2019 the concept of being able to cross with no identification is absolutely absurd to us and of course Cormac McCarthy wrote this book in 2005 so things had changed by this point this is post 9-11 border security was becoming predominant in the minds of the American federal government but it just seems so crazy to us now the fact that Moss essentially the way it's written in the book is he's being treated as a guy who had a falling out with his wife went to Mexico, drunk a bottle of tequila, and now he's trying to get back in. And the border guard is basically just messing around with him, just trying to <laughs> make him suffer a little bit to come back in. But he's always going to let him back in. He's clearly a Texan. Yeah, and in the film, how that that, that plays out, obviously with the, the, the border guard saying, of course, when he, he discovers he was in the forces and he's able to say very quickly which regiment he was in, then, um, yeah, he lets him back in straight away. But it's that little bit before it where, you know, who's going to let you back in? It's me, you know, and he's he's in control of that. But you're right, it's it's absurd that one person would, would have uh, that much power. It seems so completely out of time. It seems so completely otherworldly, you know, in the same way that in, in, in films, you know, we see people's, 
smoking inside buildings, you know, mm, and yeah. it, it looks like a completely different world. In the same way that old pre-digital photographs have an aesthetic which is now so alien, is so old, so distant from us that that it appears to be of a completely other time. And I think that that does that does some of that. It casts it back completely. The the, the world was was a completely different place. Yeah, or just parking your car and getting out and walking up to the runway to catch your plane. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, completely unimaginable, but really very, very evocative. The logic of the world is different, logic of the world that we're engaging in. I think one of the other things with the, 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 the midpoint is the introduction of Carson Wells. Let's talk about him. He's the last significant character, obviously big actor being chosen, Woody Harrelson. Yeah, I mean, Carson Wells. Yeah, really interesting that he arrives at that midpoint in in the film, and I think forms part of the midpoint. Forms part of of what we might see as a comic section in the in the middle of the film. So Woody Harrelson's known for you know comic roles. He's an iconic actor. The last thing we expect is for him then to die very very quickly. You know, we expect him to to carry on to the end. We expect him to be some kind of savior. So in in that structural sense, that midpoint. If we see the introduction of Carson Wells as the midpoint, effectively, then we we expect it to go in, into into a different place. This is the start of you know the rest of Act Two. It's moving towards Act Three and resolution. And oh. Oh, he was—he's dead really quickly, and the the the, the casting of Woody Harrelson um, does does some of that as well. We don't expect Woody Harrelson to die. Yeah, and even the uh, the interactions he has are notably more comic than in the book. When he asks the question of can he get his parking validated to the mysterious man who's hired him, in the book that is not a joke. It's very tense, and in the film, of course, it's it's comedic and it's mm-hmm. it's it's snappy. I think for the ending, we'll have to kind of try and wrap it up as concisely as we can. And without having to dwell on the specifics of all of the ending, there are some major changes. Moss's downfall, his eventual death in in the book follows him picking up a hitchhiker and spending some time with an underage girl who is trying to move out, hitchhike her way to California, probably introducing more themes, adding more to the actual literary version in that sense of what the aspirations of young people are in in these places the recurring theme with her is that basically anything she does in her life is going to be permanent that's what moss is warning her and he gives her money and he takes her with him and there is no sexual interaction between them but the fact that they're both found dead at the same time obviously then leaves the official police report that is given to Carla Jean. His wife is always going to be dubious. What what was he really doing out there with all that money picking up this hitchhiker? But again, being the, the hero character that he was, he, he essentially wanted someone who would just drive so he could sleep on the way. And then he starts to form a little bit of a bond with her in, in terms of wanting to help her out. Again, another act of humanity comes into it. In the film, they just, they have her as essentially a woman at a swimming pool who's kind of catcalling him, and he mentions that he's married. And then again, the same way that Cormac McCarthy treats it, their deaths happen off screen, which is very, very interesting for a film of this nature. The fact that you lose your main character. In the book, it's actually quite hard to discern for a second because the sheriff has just caught up and found the bodies. And you're getting a police report about 
two people who have been found dead and then you realize oh no it's it's moss and you get the same feeling in the film of suddenly is this over but has has the whole film ended has the story ended yeah, you, I, I think you're right. It's, it is quite a significant change, and it's that moment of, of narrative compression. And I think in, in the film, there's a question about whether structurally at that point we, we would accept another journey, another long dialogue sequence. I think that'd be very difficult for an audience. But it does do something with with Moss's character at that point. You know, he, he's almost a father figure, fatherly figure in in many ways. And there's that bit where she she asks him his age, and he says he's thirty six, and that's real old, and all that. So, so that being compressed into that moment by the swimming pool, I think it still works very effectively because it allows uh, Moss to take the moral high ground. He's still a very moral character, and we don't expect a moral character to die that quickly he has he has a moral stance he should survive so then to, uh, to for him to die so quickly and so insignificantly and i think that's the thing both in the book and what's translated so well in the film is it's just one of those things it happens off screen we don't then have any connection to it whereas at the start we've been drawn into that character we empathize with the character we're put alongside um the character you know we we understand some of perhaps of his motivations by that point but we're not allowed access to his death we're not allowed to grieve for the character we're not allowed to connect with them anyway they just gone disappeared completely and suddenly we're put alongside the sheriff in that situation so we're deliberately pushed away from the characters we're denied both by Cormac McCarthy and by the Coen brothers that emotional connection that we really want it leaves us feeling very very cold and you're right it's like is, is that it now and of course it kind of is for the story but then it gives us that little bit more and very importantly it gives us Sugar's escape you know that, that horrible crash the the very detailed description of the bone sticking through the arm it really very gruesome image which is is captured is written beautifully in the book captured very well on on yeah, screen hard, very hard to watch on screen i i have to look away every every mm-hmm. time i can't see that and it says some you know the, the reaction of of the boys is is fantastic you know that kind of hey you've you've got a bone sticking through your arm yeah. you know that their amazement at it their interest in it and the peculiarity of it is is really emphasized as well as the gore that's there but of course, Sugar has to be out there. He he has to get away. He has to be present among us. You know, um, the, the 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 devils are out there. The devil is out there, mm. and he might come for us any moment. You know that that lock might shoot through the door at any second, and he he might walk into the room and ask us to choose on a, on the toss of a coin. Yeah, when you mentioned Moss's age and him seeming so old to the young hitchhiker. It again ties back into that sense that he belongs in that category with the sheriff of the old men, of the old timers who are not actually able to keep up with the chain of events which have been set in motion. And so even though this phrase is never actually used, uh, no country for old men, it's, it's very much encompassing the thematic elements that are, that are present and explains the ending to us because the ending then goes to dwell with the sheriff and his difficulties and eventual decision to retire based on these difficulties of understanding what is really happening around him and the sense that he no longer can be an effective agent for the enforcement of of law and order anymore. Yeah, absolutely, which is why it's so important that 
he doesn't solve the crime. He can never solve it. That Shigur gets away, that he can't capture him. That would be too neat. It would too. It would provide resolution. And the one thing that both texts do wonderfully is deny us any real sense of resolution, any real sense of understanding why. And that's how we're left with the sheriff. There is no rationale to really anything that's happened. And of course, he's he's talking through the novel and he, he talks at the end ab about his life. And again, he can't come to any resolution. And of course, it just cuts so wonderfully, mid, almost mid-sentence. Any other closing thoughts on the adaptation, just takeaways, things that, that you might have learned from, from rereading at this time or... Anything that ties into something you've written in your in your book, for example. I think one one of the things that really strikes me about No Country for Old Men, I've mentioned it a few times, is about the structure and about how it um, very very cleverly, very carefully plays with audience expectations of structure. We know there's a, a, a huge amount written about, about film structure and I've talked about inciting incidents and midpoints and acts and things like that. And we know that's true of, of a lot of examples of, of screenplays and some novels as well. But what's really interesting about No Country for Old Men is how it plays with that structure and through playing with the structure, it affects our, our reaction to, to the story, it affects our reaction to the film. It's also really, I think, instructive about how quite often it's better that we don't know anything about the detail of of characters, that you can trust, we can trust our audience to read into characters, to read into situations, to read into symbols very, very effectively. Yeah, I think in terms of originality, when it comes to the idea of originality and new writers, young writers thinking they have to come up with something completely original, it is more of a case of finding a new spin on something because audiences have certain expectations and No Country for Old Men, it belongs to a tradition of westerns. It belongs to a tradition of of heist movies and bank robberies and, and these kind of films, American crime classics. The way that it is original in that sense is the fact that it, it tries things like killing off its hero about two-thirds of the way in and about trying to create a character that symbolizes evil in some sense and, and things like that. You, it, it can't all be completely original. Uh, it, it plays with genre uh, really effectively, even to the point where Luella Moss goes into the, into the clothing shop and he's asking for the Stetson. You know, he's, mm -hmm. he's asking for these really iconic Western symbols. And the idea of playfulness with, with genre is another way of playing with audience expectation. Okay, well, I, I think that's plenty for us to think about. And again, I would highly recommend Adaptation for Screenwriters. I'm going to put a link to the book in the podcast episode. So when you look at the episode description, there'll be a link to, to take you so that you can have a look at the book. It's for anyone who's writing something historical, biographical, based on a book, anything like that. There's plenty and plenty of information in there. And I hope you've gained a lot from, from listening to Robert today. Thank you, Robert, for being on the show and making time and space in, in your university in York to, to speak with me today. No, thank you very much. It, it's been, uh, it's been re really entertaining and really good to go back to a source and interrogate it and think through um, yeah, what it's doing to, to an audience. It's great. Thank you. 
Thank you again for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and found it valuable, please do support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star review on iTunes, or recommending the show to any friends who might be interested. This is the last episode of 2019, so we'll be back in two weeks as usual with the first episode of the new year. See you then.